0: This episode of History on Fire is brought to you by Luminary Media. Hello ladies and gentlemen, I am quite happy to bring you this old new episode of History on Fire. Our subject today is, it's a weird one, it's a story of an ancient Greek man who in my opinion was the original punk rocker, long before punk or rock were a thing. It's a little different from the classic episodes about warfare and battles and this and that. It's a a little bit more of a philosophical bent, but uh, I had a blast recording it and researching it, so I hope you guys enjoy it too. If you want to listen to more episodes of History on Fire, um, there are a whole bunch of them available only on Luminary, a subscription podcast network which original shows from creators such as Russell Brand, Trevor Noah, whole bunch of other people. There's one show that I really want to check out, I haven't checked yet, called Fiasco. Their entire season 2 is dedicated to the Iran-Contra scandal of the 1980s, which is something I'm super interested in, so I shall be checking that out. Uh, in any case, if you want to check out Luminari, you can get a subscription for as little as $2.99 a month with their annual plan, plus a 7-day free trial to get started. Visit luminarypodcasts.com to start your free trial. Again, that's luminarypodcasts.com to start a free trial. It's uh, not available in all markets and subject to local currency. Terms apply. Having said all that, without further ado, let's go set history on fire. Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you're goddamn right, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic come Once when my daughter was about five years old I was driving with her from Northern California to Southern California and we were listening to some music, The Clash to be precise. The drive was long, flat and painfully boring so the temptation to press the foot on the accelerator a little extra heavy was definitely strong and in this case i just lost track of how fast I was going. Hence, the flashing lights in the rearview mirror, the stop on the side of the road, and the cop asking for license and registration. As soon as the officer came by the window, my daughter began protesting. It's not his fault, it's not his fault, she explained. "Uh, We are listening to a punk-rocking song and he got a little too excited and forgot to check the speed. (laughs) The cop was oddly amused by the loquacity of the tiny creature in the back, and this earned us some sympathy which resulted in a lesser ticket than I would have gotten otherwise. The point of this story, if there is one, is to highlight how the energy of punk rock tends to make it impossible to stay within the rules, and more often than not puts you in a collision course with authority, even though authority in this case was a fairly nice cop. If someone mentions punk rock, the first things that come to mind are bands like the Sex Pistols, The Clash or the Ramones. Music historians who tell you that punk rock was born in the 1970s, some may even stretch to see some proto-punk origins in the 1960s. But today we'll play with a different type of punk rock. We are going back about 2400 years in ancient Greece and introduce you to a character who was as punk as punk could get. Of course, don't take the punk rock reference too literally. We're not talking about music here at all. Diogenes was no musician. What we're talking about here is the spirit of punk, that energy at the roots of punk rock that seems to have had a major influence on some of my friends, from the godfather of historical podcasting, the one and only Dan Cardin, to a legend of professional skateboarding, my good man, Mr. Mike V. Some of the cornerstones of punk are an allergy to authority, a spirit of rebellion, a fiercely independent do-it-yourself approach, an emphasis on authenticity, and an absolute devotion to individual freedom. And when it came to these things, Sid Vicious had nothing on the protagonist of today's episode, a man known as Diogenes the Dog. That's a cool name right there. Here's a juicy story for you to give you a taste of the kind of guy Diogenes was. In the mid-330s before Common Era, Alexander was well on his way to taking the steps that would make him known to history as The Great. Following the death of his father, Alexander had just finished crushing under his heel several peoples as well as cities, uh, the ones who had dared to question his right to rule. No one in their right mind could miss the memo indicating Alexander was a scary human being and you definitely never wanted to get on his bedside. During his campaign solidifying his hold on Greece, Alexander found himself in Corinth, he had heard that there lived the famous philosopher Diogenes, so he sent some of his men to summon him. But Diogenes simply gave the invoice of a big, nah, I don't feel like it type of answer. Now, that's something no one did. If Alexander the Great summons you, you run. That's it. You know, no questions asked, you hurry up and get to Alexander at least if you value the chance to keep on breathing for a while. So this was unusual, to say the least, and Alexander's curiosity was piqued. Obviously, the least one could say was that Diogenes was no ordinary character. So Alexander took the unusual step of not immediately ordering his execution and instead of going to see him. He found Diogenes sunbathing naked in the middle of a public square because that's just how he rolled. So Alexander approached him and introduced himself, saying, I'm Alexander, the great king, to which Diogenes replied, and I'm Diogenes, the dog. At this point, Alexander asked him for what he wished. He was Alexander the Great, after all, and such was his power that with a few words he could either order a man's death or grant him most of his wishes, depending on his mood. And Diogenes had clearly won the lottery since Alexander offered to grant him any request he had. When Diogenes finally replied, his request was not exactly the kind anyone would expect when given free rein to satisfy one's wildest desires. The way Alexander was standing next to him, in fact, was blocking the sunlight and casting a shadow on Diogenes. So Diogenes simply replied, Stand out of my sunlight. Yeah. In the presence of a guy who is about to become the most powerful man in the world, who can deliver anything one may want to those he favors, and death and destruction to those who offend him, What kind of a man tells Stand Out of My Sunlight, just so he can continue sunbathing naked in peace? Alexander, of course, could have ordered Diogenes torn to pieces on the spot. But demonstrating he had a sense of humor, he laughed instead and remarked, Had I not been Alexander, I would have liked to have been Diogenes. And with characteristic defiant spirit, Diogenes replied, If I wasn't Diogenes, I would be wishing to be Diogenes too. In light of this, you may begin to get what I mean when I say Diogenes was the original punk rocker, well over 2,000 years before punk was a thing. Now, a word of warning. Normally, any time I've dedicated an episode or more than one to an individual, it has been someone I like a lot. Now, I don't indulge in rosy, romanticized views. I don't shy away from you know, putting the spotlight on the dark sides, even of the people I like. Whether we talk about Theodore Roosevelt, Caravaggio, Crazy Horse, John of Arc, any of the biographies I've done, I have no problems showing some of the problematic aspects of these people. But yet, overall, you know, even though it may be a mixed bag, usually there's a lot more that I like than I don't. Today is a little bit trickier. You know, I started the research liking Diogenes a lot. But the more I dug into his story, the more my opinion changed. So now I'm closer to 50-50. There's still a lot I like about Diogenes. And, you know, regardless of my personal opinion, he's simply too colorful of a character not to discuss him. But there's also quite a bit of a dark side to his story, which perhaps is the is at the roots of the very problem with punk rock in general. In any case, I'll reserve my criticism of Diogenes for the end, and in the meantime I'll just tell you this story without... My own personal bias or interference. I'll just try to tell it to you, you know, tell you the facts, and then I can save some opinions for the end. In terms of sources, things are as thin as you may guess them to be when discussing some homeless philosopher who lived over 2300 years ago. If he wrote anything, and some sources say that he did, all his books are lost. So, what we have are mainly anecdotes about his life. There are references to him in the writings of Aristotle, Seneca, Epictetus, Plutarch, Juvenal, Marcus Aurelius, St. Augustine, you know, many, many, many famous writers of the ancient world have discussed him. But our main source is the life of Diogenes of Sinop, well, by the way, I'm taking a guess on how to pronounce the word, by a guy whose name is kind of odd in light of the subject because the author's name is Diogenes Laertius who lived in the 3rd century so literally hundreds of years after the facts. you know, granted he was working from older sources that have been lost but still, there's a big gap there so plenty of room for legends to grow and that inevitably means it's hard to separate fact from fiction all we know about this, uh, this writer of the biography, this Diogenes Laertius, and you know there's no relation that we know of to our Diogenes, I guess Diogenes just happened to be a popular name back then, I guess, is that the writer who compiled the biography was Greek, lived in the 3rd century Common Era, and was the author of a book called The Lives of Eminent Philosophers which basically is a collection of biographies of 82 Greek philosophers. Much of what you find in this book is an emphasis on actions, anecdotes, conversations that some of these different philosophers had. A giant of modern philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche liked this a lot because he argued that philosophy shouldn't just be a collection of ideas, but something transforming how somebody lives. So information about a person's life is at least as interesting as uh, what they decide to write down on paper. In any case, despite our thin sources about Diogenes, the man had a big impact, both in the Greco-Roman classical world and even down to modernity. Within the context of the classical world, the Stoics, You know, people like Seneca or Epictetus, for example, they loved him. And for good reason, since, as we will explore later, Stoicism as a whole was heavily influenced by Diogenes' teachings. The Roman Emperor Julian wrote about him in positive terms, and even some of the Church Fathers managed to appreciate something about him, despite the fact that he was clearly at odds with most of their values. So based on the existing evidence, it seems that Diogenes was born around the year 413 before Common Era, with an alternate theory that he was born during the reign of the Thirty Tyrants, which was in 404 before Common Era. Uh, That particular reign only lasted a few months. The same sources tell us that he died in 323 before Common Era, so depending on which date you accept for his birth, he was either 90 when he died or 81. Anyway, you slice it, a pretty long life. The 323 before Common Era date for his death is interesting because that's the same year as the one when Alexander the Great died. The renowned Ancient Greek author Plutarch even wrote that Diogenes died on the exact same day as Alexander. Now, while it's certainly possible for this to be true, it's equally possible that the coincidence of Diogenes dying on the same day as Alexander is a poetic creation for the sake of comparing the destiny of the most powerful man in that part of the world and a homeless philosopher would defy him, despite the fact that Alexander admired him. In addition to the one I just mentioned a few minutes ago, there are plenty of stories about the interactions between Diogenes and Alexander, and it's easy to get the feeling that at least some of these may be fabricated, because they're almost too perfect to be true. The contrast between the lifestyle of a guy who conquered a big chunk of the known world and a guy who won next to nothing and yet was reputed to be happier than Alexander. Is such a powerful theme, offering plenty of room to ancient writers to muse about the nature of wealth and happiness. The one may be forgiven for thinking some of it may be a literary invention. In any case, 323 before Common Era is the year of Diogenes' death. According to available sources, this time frame between the end of the 400s and uh, 323 is a pivotal period in Greek history. For the sake of keeping things quick, I will not do a deep dive into the historical context, or we could do several episodes before we even get to Diogenes. If you guys are interested in this, time in history, there's a podcast called The History of Ancient Greece, which may be to your liking, because of course it focuses specifically on the topic at hand. Since I want to keep this story to one episode, I'm just going to stick primarily on Diogenes himself, but it's worth to at least consider just a few of the major events that took place in the course of Diogenes' life. And again, if you want more, check out the history of ancient Greece, and there are going to be plenty of episodes where they spend hours and hours covering the stuff that I'm going to cover in just a few minutes. Diogenes was born just as the Peloponnesian War was ending, in case the name tells you nothing, what came to be known as the Peloponnesian War in many sources was a nearly multi-decade struggle for supremacy between the two Greek superpowers, Sparta and Athens, which began in four hundred thirty-one before Commonera and ended in four hundred four before Commonera. As a result of this, Athens, which had been the intellectual heart of Greece, would enter a period of steady political decline. The end of the war resulted in Athens being briefly ruled by pro-Spartan oligarchs known as the 30 Tyrants, and this happened in 404. The 30 Tyrants' chief goal was to erase democracy in Athens, and the way they went about it was rather brutal. One of the leaders of the 30 was a man named Critias and again, bear in mind that I'm taking creative guesses on some of this pronunciation between the way they are pronounced actually in Greek, Italian, English, I'm doing somewhat of a creative mix here. This guy had been a disciple of the philosopher Socrates before breaking away from him. Learning for a while under Socrates apparently did nothing to turn Critias into a pleasant, mellow human being. Rather, with his actions, Critias wrote a chapter in the same playbook that will be used by people like Robespierre, Stalin, Mao, Hitler, Pinochet, and all the other totalitarian freaks in history. Under his leadership, the 30 tyrants murdered scores of political opponents, with most historians agreeing that in just a few months they may have assassinated about 5% of the entire population of Athens, and they exiled even more. Some of the exiles didn't take well to Christians and company reign of terror, so within a few months they came back, overthrew the 30, and delivered them a dose of their own murderous medicine, wiping them out. Just to show that an enthusiasm for murdering its citizens was not a monopoly of the 30, a few years later the new Athenian government put Socrates on trial for not believing in the gods worshipped by the state and for corrupting the minds of the youth, which, if there are some weird charges ever in history, these are they fit the bill, you know, not believing in the gods worshipped by the state and corrupting the minds of the youth. I mean, what does this even mean? At the end of the trial, Socrates was forced to down a shot of poison, and so ended the life and the career of the most influential Greek philosopher ever. Endless wars kept characterizing Greek history in the following decades. In particular, we see the Corinthian War first and the Theban-Spartan War later. The result of all these conflicts was to shift the seat of power between Sparta and Thebes, with even the Persians playing an important role. Ultimately, though, all of these conflicts among these cities were for nothing, since all the power players would be slapped around by the new boss on the Greek political scene. That would be Philip II of Macedon first, and later his son Alexander the Great. Diogenes lived through all of these events, at the same time with the who's who in the history of philosophy, people like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. So with at least an outline of this wild historical backdrop sketched out, let's return to our lead character. Diogenes was considered a Greek, even though technically he was born in what's today modern-day Turkey. In fact, there were several cities on the coast of Turkey that had been founded by Greek colonists, and even some that may have not been founded by them, but they were definitely inhabited by them at this juncture in history. So while these lands are not part of Greece today, back then they were Greek colonies. Diogenes' hometown was actually further removed from the coast compared to other Greek colonies. Sinope was actually located inland along the southern coast of the Black Sea. Legend has it that the town was founded by the Amazons, the quasi-mythological warrior women of Greek mythology. There's a whole debate among historians on whether anything even approaching the Greek description of the Amazons ever existed with many suggesting that the myth may have originated from female fighters who were part of the powerful nomadic nations of the Scythians and the Sarmatians. In these cultures, in fact, women were often competent warriors, something that would have shocked the Greeks and their idea about proper gender roles. Just mentioning the Amazons, Is dangerous business for me, because the prospect of diving into a rabbit's hole made of epic tales of badass warrior ladies is insanely tempting. But with unusual self-restraint, I'll stay disciplined and stick to Diogenes and his world, while taking a rain check from the Amazons for perhaps a future episode of History on Fire. So back to the place where Diogenes was born. Regardless of its origin and its mythological connection with the Amazons. By the time by Diogenes' time, Sinope was the most important Greek settlement by the Black Sea. Before Diogenes was born in back in four hundred forty four before Common Era, the Athenians overthrew a local tyrant and set up a democracy. That prospered for a few decades until it was squashed by the Persians in three seventy-five before Common Era. So, in terms of political control of the place, there was a bit of a ping-pong going on between the Greeks and the Persians. The town was characterized by all the typical things that one could find in a wealthy Greek settlement: temples, fancy homes, gymnasiums, of which the Greeks were very fond. The source of the town's wealth came from its strategic location among major trade routes. Merchants passed through from as far as Greece to the west and possibly all the way to India to the east. So it's almost certain that Diogenes grew up exposed to a mix of Greek, Middle Eastern, and Indian cultures. It's actually quite interesting to notice how many key figures in the history of philosophy and religion were also exposed to a variety of cultural influences. Whether we're talking about Jesus, Mohammed, Buddha, all of them lived in areas where people, merchandise, and ideas mixed freely. According to most sources, Diogenes' father was named Eccasius, and he was a banker. There's actually archaeological evidence that a man with that very same name, did mint the coins in Sinop at that time. Now, when I say banker, the ancient word version of a banker was a bit different from some guy in a suit and tie inside a large building. Bankers should set up their tables up in a marketplace, exchange currency, make loans, check for the coin's authenticity, and in some cases also manufacture coins. This means that Diogenes certainly didn't grow up poor, and since most men followed in their father's profession, it's likely that Diogenes also became a banker. Okay, so far so good. Probably a comfortable life, the kind that would bring financial security and make your mom proud, but not exactly the kind of stuff that makes history. If you've studied your Joseph Campbell books, and learn about the concept of the hero's journey. You know that every good story needs a moment of crisis, moving the hero from ordinary life into a new dangerous space where adventure has a chance to begin. In this case, the event precipitating the crisis doesn't exactly ring particularly heroic. Diogenes and his father engage in what in the ancient world was referred to as defacing the coinage, which in other words means to damage large amounts of coins in order to put them out of circulation. There are all sorts of theories regarding why they did such a thing, from political machinations to financial conspiracy and pretty much everything in between, but basically the reality is no one knows. What we do know is that they were busted for it, and Diogenes' father was arrested, while Diogenes himself either skipped town or was exiled. While on the run, Diogenes made his way to Greece and visited the renowned oracle at Delphi. The idea at the roots of oracles is a classic shamanic concept that many ancient people swore by. The belief was that certain peoples, shamans in tribal culture specially trained priests in city-states like those existing in Greece these people had the ability to enter a trance-like state during which spirits and gods could speak through them many ancient Greeks considered the oracle with dread and reverence fully believing that the gods spoke through the oracles Others were a little more skeptical and felt that at least some of the oracles performed tricks and preyed on superstition. The oracle at Delphi was the most famous in all of Greece. Before we consider Diogenes' question for the oracle and the response he received, please bear with me as I go at least briefly on a juicy tangent about the oracle at Delphi. At the Temple of Apollo, in Delphi, starting about at least 2800 years ago and possibly much longer. The high priestess, this role in fact always fell to a woman, was said to inhale some fumes rising from the ground and then she would enter an altered state of consciousness channel the god and give answers to the queries of the mortals wishing to interrogate the oracle. One theory regarding the nature of the fumes inhaled by the high priestess is that they came from the spring waters that flowed under the temple. Other scholars believe they were the fumes of the oleander plant being burned underneath the ground. Either way, since it was believed the gods spoke to her, the high priestess was possibly the most powerful woman in all of Greece. But this came at a high price, since channeling the god was said to be physically exhausting, to the point that many priestesses didn't have long lives. It is also said that a couple of maxims were carved into the temple of Apollo. The most famous one is Know Yourself, ultimately reminding visitors that the greatest knowledge is self-knowledge, something that good old Sun Tzu, the author of The Art of War, would have certainly appreciated. Another maxim being nothing in excess, which if we are looking for cross-cultural parallels is one of the foundational concepts in Taoism. Time and time again in ancient Greek history, the oracle at Delphi played a key role. For example, we briefly saw the Delphic oracle show up in one of the earliest History on Fire episodes, episodes 4 and 5, if I remember correctly, about the story of the 10,000 mercenaries heading to Persia, when the lead character in that story, Xenophon, had visited the oracle asking for advice. We find the oracle also in the story of the most famous philosopher of the ancient world, Socrates. It is said that when asked who was the wisest of men, the oracle had pointed to Socrates, and and Socrates had felt like, come on, what are you talking about? He had rejected the verdict since he felt he didn't really know that much, and certainly many people were wiser than him, so he went about trying to prove the oracle wrong by meeting those whom he considered, or were considered wise by the masses, if not always by him. However, unfailingly, he came away from those meetings feeling that the so-called public intellectuals of his age were frauds, hiding their lack of true wisdom behind a facade made of thick knowledge and needlessly complicated language. As it turns out, that's exactly why the oracle had proclaimed Socrates to be the wisest of men. It was because, just like John Snow, Socrates knew nothing and he was perfectly aware of these limitations. This is what Alan Watts referred to as the wisdom of insecurity. What this means is paradoxical but simple. You know, Wisdom of insecurity basically is the idea that those who feel wise, thanks to their knowledge, usually stop searching for good answers, thinking they already have them. And often end up becoming rigid, and dogmatic in their thinking, whereas those who are aware of how limited their knowledge is are more likely to remain on the prowl, alert, constantly testing their even their more cherished ideas, and ready to acquire new answers, and adopt anything that may help us in life. The Oracle at Delphi also shows up plenty in the writings of Greece possibly first historian, Herodotus. For the sake of eventually making our way back to Diogenes, I'll, I'll just tell you one story about the oracle that's found in Herodotus. Our tale begins with the Lydian king Croesus, uh, Lydia being, back then, was part of modern-day Turkey, who in the 6th century before Common Era wanted to test which oracles could be considered reliable. And which ones were fake. So in a remarkable display of scientific inquiry he sent messengers to a whole bunch of oracles asking what he was doing on an appointed day that would fall exactly 100 days after his messengers had left the court for the sake of avoiding lacking some lucky guess on the part of some oracles, he chose to do something so weird and so outlandish that no one could randomly guess it. He would uh, boil the bodies of a turtle and a lamb in a cauldron made of bronze and with a cover also made of bronze. In the Delphic Oracle, when asked about you know, what is King Krasos doing now, Replied. I know the number of each grain of sand at the bottom of the sea I hear the voice of the mute and understand them even though they cannot speak now I can taste the hard-shell tortoise boiled in brass with the flesh of lamb bronze is laid beneath it and bronze is put over it none of the other oracles had guessed it So Crassus became a devotee of the Delphic oracle, put all of his trust in its accuracy, and sent plenty of expensive gifts to the oracle. Despite these professions of devotion, Crassus was clearly not paying attention to the motto Nothing in Excess, since both his gifts and his wealth were way over the top. In any case, at this point, Cresos got down to business that, you know, the business that had pushed him to test the different oracles' reliability in the first place. Specifically, as of late, he had been losing a few nights of sleep over the emerging power of Persia under Cyrus the Great, was just blooming right next door to Lydia. Krasos was afraid they would attack him, so he was debating whether to seize the initiative and attack first in the kind of preemptive strike that would have made George W. Bush happy, or just sit back and wait. Now, clearly, this was a big decision, because if he miscalculated, he could bring ruin on himself and his nation. So his top advisors had tried to warn him not to start the war. You know, one of them had told him, Let us remember what type of people we're about to attack. They are wild men who wear leather trousers who know no luxury, drink no wine and barely have enough to eat. They can survive on a few figs a day. They have nothing that is worth having and if you defeat them you will gain nothing. We, on the other hand, live in enormous comfort. Our treasuries are overflowing with gold If they defeat us, they will gain everything, and we shall lose everything. So what is the advantage for us in this war? Let us be grateful that the gods have not put the idea into the heads of the Persians that they should attack us. It is far better for us to sit tight and to do nothing. Krasos, however, wasn't sold, so he chose to ask the oracle. And the oracle's reply was that if Croesus attacked, he would destroy a powerful empire. Now, talk about the mother of all ambiguous statements. And Kresos found out in the worst possible way how ambiguous this statement was. Because when he attacked and he was defeated by the Persians, he quickly realized that the powerful empire he had destroyed was his own. Herodotus goes on to tell us that just as Crasos was about to be burned alive by Cyrus, because, you know, losing a war in the ancient world was no joke, he called out for Solon. Cyrus asked the meaning for this and found out that, years prior, Cresos had met the famous Athenian politician Solon, had showed off his wealth and asked if Solon believed whether Croesus himself was the happiest man on earth or not. And Solon had replied that it was impossible to count someone as happy until after they have died, since fortune is fickle and things can change quickly. Now, finding himself no longer an ultra-wealthy king at the head of a powerful state, but a prisoner about to be roasted alive, Krasos realized how right Solon had been. So the story is that Cyrus had him released and decided not to barbecue him anymore and instead he kept him around as a reminder and as an advisor. Some scholar killjoys suggest that no, that part is not true and he actually burned him. In any case, what we can get from this tangent besides some fairly cool tales is an appreciation of how important oracles were, so much so that they feature prominently, even in the lives of kings and uber-famous philosophers. The story of Diogenes is no exception. Following his escape from his native city, he made his way to Delphi and asked the oracle, what should I do to gain great fame? Showing a bit of a sense of humor, the oracle replied, deface the currency. Considering that defacing the currency was precisely what had gotten Diogenes and his old man in trouble, what the hell was the oracle talking about? Was this the god's idea of a joke? Diogenes, however, correctly interpreted the advice metaphorically, not literally. Defacing the coinage, the way he understood it, meant challenging the established values of society and taking down a peg whatever the masses held in a high esteem. Now, some scholars question whether this encounter of Diogenes with the Delphic oracle really took place, since Diogenes in specific and more in general the members of his school of thought, uh, the cynics, were very anti-organized religion and did not trust in oracles. There's a story about Diogenes once berating a guy about to consult an oracle since he argued that you can't trust anyone claiming to know the will of the gods. So it's a little odd that the oracle would would play a role at the very beginning of Diogenes' calling. So it could be a story made up later, just because it's evocative and it gives a sense of mission to Diogenes' philosophical career or it could be that Diogenes held a more positive opinion of oracles at this point in his life. In any case, whether the story about the oracle is just a poetic legend or whether it's historically accurate, Diogenes made his way to Athens. Athens at this time was the intellectual capital of Greece and was quite hospitable to foreigners as uh, ancient Greece went. In his masterpiece, The Peloponnesian War, historian Thucydides says the Athenian statesman Pericles spoke thus, here goes the quote, We maintain Athens open and accessible to everybody, and we do not turn away those who flee from danger, or those who come to us moved by curiosity, or by a desire to improve themselves. So let's be clear, I mean, foreigners had way less rights than citizens in Athens, but they were treated quite fairly. So all in all, among the places where you could go as a refugee, Athens was probably high on the list. It was in Athens that Diogenes came under the influence of his main philosophical role model, a man by the name of Antisthenes, Some scholars believe they develop a master disciple relationship, while others argue they never met physically, but simply Diogenes was influenced by Antisthenes' writings while he was in Athens. Antisthenes was a teacher of rhetoric who gave up his career once he met Socrates. Confronted with Socrates' teachings, Antisthenes felt everything else he had learned up until this point was worthless in comparison, so he sold all his possessions, gave money away, and chose to follow Socrates, until until after Socrates' death, when he became one of the several disciples of his to start his own philosophical school. Antisthenes is considered the founder of the philosophical school known as Cynicism, which just FYI and to avoid confusion is not the same thing as what we mean today when we say that someone is a cynic. Uh, The term cynicism in in the history of philosophy is a bit different from the way we use it in common language. Diogenes would further develop Antisthenes' teachings and shape the cynic movement. Antisthenes himself was the son of an Athenian father and a Thracian slave so he was considered a bastard, according to Athenian law, and he was known as the absolute dog, that was his nickname, and had the reputation for being a bit of a rebel. So this is how Diogenes' main biographer describes his supposed first encounter with Antisthenes. So I'm going to just go on an extensive quote. Here it goes. On reaching Athens... Diogenes came under the influence of Antisthenes. Being rejected by him because he never welcomed disciples, Diogenes wore him out by sheer persistence. Once, when Antisthenes stretched out his staff against him, Diogenes offered his said with the words Strike, for you will find no wood hard enough to keep me away from you, so long as I think that you have something to say. And from that time on, he was his disciple. So this first encounter reads uh, almost exactly as a textbook meeting between disciple and master in the Zen tradition. In classic Zen fashion, the teacher is rough and doesn't want to be bothered. And the wannabe disciple has to demonstrate his commitment to learning and seriousness of intent by remaining undeterred in the face of repeated refusals and harsh attempts to turn him away. We saw this very same pattern plenty of times in the story of Ikkyu Sojun and in the exploration of Zen Buddhism that we did in episodes 45 and 46. So here we have a Greek version of the same dynamics. After learning what he could from Antisthenes. Diogenes took over his role as the leader of this new philosophical movement of cynicism. The word cynic itself derives from the Greek word for dog. So cynic, literally translated, could be like dog-like. So Diogenes the Cynic, if you break down what it means in ancient Greek, Diogenes the Cynic meant a man from God who acts like a dog, which is quite a title. Now, what did Antisthenes and Diogenes have in mind when uh, they named their movement after dogs? Author Luis Navier, who wrote an excellent book about Diogenes, wrote the following. Dogs, at least wild and street dogs, live fully in accordance with nature. For them, neither conventions, nor complicated norms, nor etiquette, nor manners, nor the proper way of doing things nor the distinction between what is right and what is wrong have any meaning they belong to no country and pledge allegiance to no flag and are not burdened by titles or possessions neither are they consuming thoughts or perplexities about the nature of virtue or about the immortality of the soul nor do they have the ability to pass judgment as to what is natural and what is not they simply live and die precisely as nature intended them to live and die. So with this in mind, when Diogenes declared he was a dog at war with the world, it meant that the society of his day had strayed too far from nature and was following sick values that needed to be challenged. So in following the advice of the Delphic Oracle, Diogenes began his war against the cultural currency of the day. That is the norms and rules of conventional society. His was, at least in his mind, a titanic struggle. For example, through much of his life, Diogenes was quite passionate about going to attend athletic competitions. And when people asked him why he went, he said he saw himself as competing alongside the athletes, but on a bigger stage. You know, the athletes competed with each other, he competed with monsters keeping humans from their potential, the monsters of greed, pride, hatred, and so on and so forth. In one case you had the gold and the medal were at stake during the athletic competitions, but it was the very soul of a human being that Diogenes believed to be at stake in his own brand of life competition. Most early cynics, came from hard circumstances. As uh, Navia again writes, Antisthenes comes into the world as the bastard son of a Thracian slave and remains throughout his life, tainted by the lowly character of his mother's origins and branded as an outsider. Crates walks into the scene as a lame hunchback. Monimus begins his life as a mistreated slave who forced himself into fake madness in order to secure his freedom. Bayon, one of the harshest cynics, is the son of a prostitute and a dissolute father, who had been sold as a slave. Menippus also starts his life in a bad way, as a slave who supported himself by begging. Cercidas is compelled to come to grips with the moral bankruptcy of the world, and the inhumanness of war when his homeland is destroyed by the Spartans. And the list keeps going on and on and on, you know, basically you realize that so many of the members of the cynical philosophical movement face many difficulties in their life and this experience made them question social norms. So is it a case of sour grapes? pushing the cynics to put down social values, since they were basically dregs at the edge of society anyway. I mean That's certainly a possibility, but maybe not. Many people experienced similar misfortunes and they didn't react the same way. In any case, Diogenes would live the rest of his life as an eccentric, a wild man at war with tradition and in love with freedom. As we'll soon see, it would be an understatement to say that Diogenes' lifestyle was rather unique. You know, long before Frank Sinatra ever sang, I did it my way, Diogenes put that statement in practice. So let's discover what was it about Diogenes' lifestyle that struck his contemporaries, and for the matter, even people today, as radically weird. It all began with Antisthenes' teachings. According to the Stoic teacher Epictetus, Diogenes once said, From the time that Antisthenes set me free, I have ceased being a slave. So let's consider that. How did Antisthenes set him free? Listen to what Diogenes says He taught me what is mine and what is not mine, property is not mine, kinsmen, Members of my household, friends, reputation, familiar places, social intercourse with people. All these things are not my own. What then is yours? The power to deal with external circumstances and impressions. He showed me that I possess that without any hindrance or constraint. No one can hamper me, and no one can force me to deal with them, otherwise than as I choose. So what we get here from these quotes is that this emphasis on focusing on our ability to control how we react to circumstances, rather than hopelessly trying to have a say on circumstances that are beyond our control, clearly shows how the philosophy of Stoicism finds its roots in Cynicism. Zeno, in fact, the founder of Stoicism, uh, would be a student of the cynic Crates who in turn had been a student of Diogenes. The renowned Roman Stoic writer Seneca would pay Diogenes homage by saying, Diogenes acted in such a way that he could not be robbed of anything, for he freed himself from everything that is fortuitous. It appears to me as if he had said, concern yourself with your own business, O fate, for there is nothing in Diogenes that belongs to you anymore. Okay, so far so good, but this only tells us that Diogenes was a Stoic before Stoicism had been invented. It doesn't tell us anything particularly strange about his manner of living. Diogenes, however, took his proto-Stoic ideas a bit further than most sane people would. In his effort to live a simple life with minimal needs, Diogenes decided to live with a pack of stray dogs in a tub in the Athenian marketplace. By tub, the Greeks meant a large barrel, something that had often been used by homeless refugees during the Peloponnesian War, since barrels had the advantage of offering at least minimal protection against the elements. Diogenes said he liked how snails carried their homes on their back, and was only too happy to copy them. So, this voluntary homelessness, his acceptance of wearing old ragged clothes, his refusal to be involved in politics, hold the job or serve in the army, his choice to eat a simple diet and avoid marriage, all of this stuff stem from an extreme desire to be unencumbered by the things that, according to Diogenes, kept human beings trapped. So this is what allowed him to claim I am Athens' one free man. So it is said that when a tax collector came to ask for money, he replied that he kept all his riches inside him. And I quote, where you can neither get them nor see them. In another occasion, still emphasizing this theme in Diogenes' life, once he saw a kid drinking out of his hands, so he threw away one of his few possessions, which was a drinking cup, saying, a child has given me a lesson in plainliness of living. So this making a cult out of frugality is what made some writers refer to Diogenes as the Athenian Thoreau, referring to the American writer Henry David Thoreau, who glorified frugality in his masterpiece Walden. But in truth, Diogenes took frugality much further than uh, Thoreau ever did. Now, choosing homelessness as Diogenes did is something that probably strikes most of us as borderline crazy. But even if we're not ready to follow Diogenes to these excesses, this theme of frugality is an interesting one. After all, I mean, why reject wealth and possessions and not consider them treasures to be pursued. Isn't it considerably more comfortable and fun than any alternative to live in a fancy mansion, eat like a king, and own any luxurious items we may desire? Unfortunately, the answer to that is a big yes and no, because it's not that clear-cut. I mean, on one hand, of course it is. Speaking of which, if you guys feel generously inclined to donate your Hawaiian villa to me I'll be only too glad to receive it you know to relieve you of your extra burden and help you achieve spiritual enlightenment so just let me know but the problem is that unless you win the lottery inherit a whole lot of money or marry rich luxuries are not free you know anytime we buy something We are trading the time and energy that we spend to earn the money necessary to buy stuff. And since most jobs are things we do grudgingly, kind of unwillingly, and we wouldn't do them if it wasn't for the fact that we're getting paid, the more things you need, the more of your life you need to trade to get those things. So to Diogenes, needing as little as humanly possible was a path to freedom. This is probably the reason why this same theme echoes across time and space among religious figures as much as philosophers. You know, We find it in Diogenes, one of his famous statements was to own nothing is the beginning of happiness. We find it in another great Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, who said may you have plenty of wealth you men of Ephesus, in order that you may be punished for your evil ways. We see it in Henry David Thoreau, when he says, the laboring man has no time to be anything but a machine. Most of the luxuries and many of the so-called comforts of life are not only not indispensable, but are positive hindrances to the elevation of mankind. We find the same theme in among the writings of early Christians, And for that matter, even Jesus himself denouncing accumulation of wealth in one of the most radical statements ever written on the topic when Jesus is quoted as saying It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's like, whoa, that's a little intense. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And we run into the same theme emphasizing how wealth can be, or maybe not wealth itself, but chasing wealth can be damaging to the human soul over and over and over and over again in many, many writings from many people across history. Those great American poets who heard the temptations sung ain't too proud to beg, I like to imagine Diogenes strolling around Athens whistling the song while he trained himself to get used to rejection by begging from statues, before eventually graduating to asking Athenian citizens for small donations to take care of his very limited needs, in a way that is fairly similar to how many monks in both Europe and Asia made a living through the centuries. Many Christian orders, in fact, would eventually borrow this concept. Some aspects of cynicism, in fact, affected early Christianity, particularly in the way Christian mendicant monks lived off donations, owning very little and preaching in the streets, something that clearly was quite similar to Diogenes' approach. In Diogenes' view, the least you need, the wealthier and freer you are. Uh, Aristotle, you know, the famous Greek philosopher, believed that the nature of humans is to live within a state and not hanging at the edges of society like Diogenes advocated. According to Aristotle, only beasts or gods can live outside of a state. Diogenes, on the other hand, felt that humans are happiest when they need nothing other than nature, You know, the things that nature provides, so sun, water, food. Diogenes argued that other things trap human beings and enslave them, taking away the most beautiful possession of all, which is their freedom. Now, even Diogenes, of course, understood that complete self-sufficiency may be next to impossible, but trying to be as self-sufficient as possible was still his goal. It is said that Diogenes once saw a mouse running around the marketplace completely at ease despite not having anything and learned from him a key aspect of his philosophy which is the ability to adapt to all situations. Again, another classic concept that will be at the foundations of Stoicism. In the words of author Louis Navier let me quote from his writing Neither social distinctions nor elaborate philosophical systems have any significance in the lives of mice. They are not encumbered by artificial and atavistic conventions, nor are they concerned about the past or the future, living always in the present moment and for the present moment. Thus, Diogenes thought, mice live in a natural way and are therefore happier than human beings for which reason they deserve to be imitated. Same thing applied to dogs, as we saw it earlier, because the whole emphasis is living in close contact with nature. Navia again says, independence, simplicity, the ability to adapt themselves to changing circumstances, an absence of inhibition with respect to their feelings and physical needs, indifference concerning where and how they live and what they eat, Absolute honesty, freedom of speech, for they bark whenever they please and at whomever they dislike. These are the virtues or strengths that characterize the canine species. And these are the traits that Diogenes and his cynic descendants admired and found worthy of imitation. So this combination of defiance and radical honesty that seemed to characterize him clearly colored Diogenes' relationship with authority. Sources tell us that time and time again Diogenes clash with some of the most important political figures of his day. Once, for example, he met Dionysus II, the tyrant of Syracuse, who had hosted Plato and other philosophers before being overthrown, having to flee Sicily and going to exile to Corinth. Plutarch tells that, upon meeting him, Diogenes told him, O Dionysus, how little you deserve your present life. Dionysus thought this meant that Diogenes was sympathizing with his exile and thanked him, but of course, if you know anything about Diogenes, you already know that that would not be the case. Rather, Diogenes replied, I'm outraged that a slave like you who, if there was justice, should have been left alone to grow old and die as a tyrant, as your father did before you, should now enjoy the ease of private life in the freedom of our society. So, yeah, so much for making friends in high places. Being the head of a state in Diogenes' estimate was a punishment, so exile was too good of a destiny for a power-hungry player like Dionysus. Of course, Dionysus, by the way, in this case is a personal name, doesn't refer to the god Dionysus that was worshipped in ancient Greece. Plato, yes, as in father of Western philosophy Plato, that Plato, scolded Diogenes about this. One day, upon seeing him wash the lettuce that Diogenes was going to have for his meal, Plato said, if you had paid your respect to Dionysus, you would not have to wash lettuce now. To which Diogenes replied, if you had washed your lettuce, you would not have had to pay your respect to Dionysus. You know, what's a problem to one guy is the exact opposite to the other. To, for Diogenes, having a simple meal and taking care of yourself was much preferable than, uh, you know, hanging out at the court of some tyrant. There are very similar anecdotes, by the way, that are told about Diogenes in relation to other famous rulers. For example, when someone was praising the lack of Callisthenes because of the luxury he was able to enjoy since he was part of Alexander the Great's retinue. Diogenes remarked, Not quite so, but rather his bad luck. For he breakfasts and dines only when Alexander thinks fit. And lastly, Diogenes supposedly said the same thing basically about the relationship between Aristotle and Philip of Macedonia, who was Alexander's father and who had hired Aristotle as the tutor for Alexander. Diogenes said, Aristotle dines at King Philip's convenience, Diogenes eats whenever he wants. So in Diogenes' opinion, having the freedom to eat scraps whenever one felt was infinitely preferable to eating the most luxurious dinner, but only when a ruler let you. So in this regard Diogenes' choices stood in opposition to those of the most famous philosophers of his days, who regularly were only too happy to receive the patronage of powerful political figures. His clash with Plato in particular is worth noting. Both Diogenes and Plato had been either directly or indirectly influenced by Socrates, Plato being a disciple of Socrates, and Diogenes being a disciple of Antisthenes, who in turn had been a disciple of Socrates. But that's where the similarities ended, since Diogenes considered Plato a traitor to the spirit of Socrates' philosophy, and this resulted in the two of them often bickering. To be entirely fair, Diogenes wasn't alone in this assessment of Plato. Since Socrates didn't leave behind any writings, and much of what is known about him comes through the books written by Plato about him, some people have questioned whether the Socrates that shows up in Plato's dialogues has any resemblance whatsoever to the real Socrates, or instead whether Plato used the name of a famous philosopher and turned him into a mouthpiece for his own ideas. After all, the Socrates in Plato's books is quite different from the Socrates' described in the writings of Xenophon, who was also a disciple of his. And Diogenes' biographer reports that Socrates once heard someone reading from one of Plato's books and said, By Hercules, what a collection of lies this young man has written about me. By Hercules, by the way, is going to be my new expression. I'm just going to, every three minutes, I'm going to go by Hercules. I dig it. In any case, getting to the bottom of which one was the real Socrates' mystery is entirely beyond the scope of what we're doing now. And it's probably beyond the capabilities of anyone who doesn't have access to a time machine. What we do know is that Diogenes took some of Socrates' ideas and made them much more radical. As a result, Plato referred to Diogenes as, I quote, a Socrates gone mad. It is an example of one of their clashes. In one instance, Plato had defined man as a featherless biped, and Diogenes promptly plucked the chicken and said, threw the dead chicken at the feet of Plato and said, look, there's Plato's man basically poking fun at Plato's preoccupation with verbal definitions. Plato also famously argued that the physical world is but a shadow of a timeless world made of ideas where things exist in their purest form. To Diogenes, this theory was, uh, to put it delicately, a whole load of wannabe, deep, pseudo-philosophical crap. On a particular occasion when Plato was speaking about the essence of the ideal table and the ideal cup, Diogenes replied he never saw such things, but only saw specific tables and specific cups. Plato responded that Diogenes' mind was limited and unable to move beyond the reality that can be perceived through the senses. Diogenes argued that what Plato was peddling was some needlessly complicated abstract metaphysics. And his whole philosophy was a waste of time. Since the only philosophy worth anything was one that helped you live a better life in the year and now. Kind of reminds me of a Buddhist parable. There's um there's a story that people kept asking Buddha you know, Siddhartha Gautama, who became the Buddha. They kept asking him about the afterlife and death and the reality of the soul and all these things that basically cannot be proven or experienced through our senses in this life. And eventually, Buddha replied with a parable, what became known as the Parable of the Arrow, where Buddha said, look, imagine this. If somebody gets shot with an arrow, and uh, his friends come to his rescue and they want to pull out the arrow and give the guy first aid. But the guy stops them and say, Nope, uh, before you can give me first aid, I want to know who shot the arrow. Why did they shoot it? Uh, what arrow is this? What kind of wood is the, the arrow made of? What about the feathers? What bird were they plucked from? Were they plucked during winter or during spring? What was the trajectory that the arrow flew? What, in other words, on and on and on about ten thousand extraneous questions? They really don't have anything to do with the situation at hand, which is you have an arrow in your body and you are hurting and you are about to die unless something is done. He said, if this guy refused help until he answered all these questions, he would simply die. And what Buddha was doing through this parable was saying, "How about we worry about what we do have power on?" about the situation at hand which specifically in Buddhist philosophy meant there's a lot of suffering in life how about we concern ourselves with limiting the conditions that let suffering thrive and in the process we benefit human beings after you have done all that if you still want to worry about the nature of the soul and the afterlife and all that be my guest but why focus on something that you have very little to no power on Rather to the stuff that you do have power on. Which in many ways is kind of the exact same thing that's happening here between Diogenes and Plato. You know, Diogenes is saying the here and now is what we have power on, is what r- really matters. Your abstract world of ideas, what are you talking about? Got a life. So this is why in Zen Buddhism you can find dialogues in which when a student asks a loaded question such as, what is the meaning of Zen, the Zen master may bring things back to a more tangible level of reality by responding to something seemingly nonsensical like the cypress tree in the garden. You know, Some Zen guys, and definitely people like Diogenes, have little patience for abstract speculating. To folks like them, the value of an idea is to be found in whether it helps you live a better life or not. That's it. As uh, Henry David Thoreau put it, there are nowadays professors of philosophy, but not philosophers. To be a philosopher is not merely to have subtle thoughts, nor even to found a school, but so to love wisdom as to live according to its dictates, a life of simplicity, independence, magnanimity, and trust. It is to solve some of the problems of life, not only theoretically, but practically. Diogenes' weapons of choice in dealing with his philosophical rivals were laughter and weirdness. In his effort to invite people to question the social norms they grew up with, Diogenes would mix humor, performance theater, and philosophy. He would uh, walk backwards in the streets. He would enter a theatre at the end of a show. He would have sex in public. He would go barefoot in winter and would roll in the sand during the hottest days of summer. Once, at a feast, when some people were making fun of him and throwing bones at him like he would at a dog, Diogenes decided that just like a dog, he would run up to them, lift his leg, and pee on them. Almost like a comedian, tearing up a heckler in some way diogenes behave like a textbook heoka and in case your memory from the episode of history on fire about lakota culture is fuzzy let me refresh it a heoka in lakota culture was someone who was charged by the spirits associated with thunder to act in seemingly paradoxical crazy ways basically the opposite of accepted rules of behavior and much like its Lakota counterpart, Diogenes' wild antics would shock people and make them laugh. But at a deeper level, what he was trying to do was to make people stop to question whether everything they had been taught truly served a purpose, or whether they were arbitrary rules that didn't improve the quality of life. To underscore this, he said, anyone who wants to be happy must follow a path that is opposite to what most people follow. And, for example, when asked how he wanted to be buried, he only half-jokingly said, ''Bury me prone. I've always faced the other way.'' And when someone drew the seemingly logical conclusion from watching his bizarre behavior and called him mad, Diogenes replied, ''I'm not mad. It is only that my head is different from yours.'' Now many, clearly are those who would be quick to dismiss Diogenes' weirdness as insanity or maybe exhibitionism or some desperate call for attention. But there was method to his madness, at least some of the time. Breaking out of the confines of normal thinking allowed Diogenes to think in creative ways and even pioneer concepts that were far ahead of his times you know, Back in his day, one's identity was entirely wrapped within the city of one's birth. Being born in Athens or Sparta or Corinth or any other city-state that dotted ancient Greece would determine your political identity and your outlook on many things. If you find yourself born a few miles in one direction or another of some man-made lines, you would have sometimes profoundly different values being downloaded into your brain through the process of acculturation. Children would grow up and as adults they would robotically replicate the values and ideas they were taught. Had they been born a few miles down the road, they would be proclaiming very different ideals. People lived and died in the name of their city. Now, normal people didn't question such things. Only fewer radical thinkers like Demosthenes and Isocrates were arguing for a Greek national identity rather than an identity based exclusively on the city of one's birth. Diogenes argued for something much more radical than even that. When someone asked him to which city he belonged, Diogenes replied, I'm a citizen of the world. The specific term he used for that was cosmopolitan, a term that he may have very well invented since it's its first recorded use in history. As the ancient Greek writer, Dio Chrysostom, commented, the whole earth was his abode, the earth that is the abode and source of nourishment for all human beings. At a time when this was unthinkable, Diogenes rejected the notion of belonging to a country or a flag, Just be human, was Diogenes' advice. Some people argue that Alexander the Great wanted to create a human community in the form of a multi-ethnic empire, rather than separate nations with separate identities. Some scholars believe it, others don't. In some way it doesn't really matter, because after Alexander's death, his generals promptly fragmented the empire, But regardless, even if that had been Alexander's plan, Diogenes' ideas were even different from that, because he did not have any... he didn't put on a pedestal this notion of a universal empire. What he did was just rejecting belonging. Diogenes argued humans are too prone to sacrifice individuality for the sake of belonging to something. And in claiming a human identity, he was saying that the place of his birth had no power to dictate his life choices and his allegiance. According to Diogenes' brand of radical individualism, a human being worthy of this name doesn't simply parrot the values he or she was taught by the culture they are born in, but chooses them. And so in in his weirdness, Diogenes pioneered a radically new way of looking at identity and added a new word to the vocabulary, which, you know, the term cosmopolitan, which incidentally will end up as the name for a rather popular drink made with vodka, triple sec, cranberry juice, and freshly squeezed or sweetened lime juice. So if you ever order a cosmopolitan at a bar, raise your glass to crazy old Diogenes. If rejecting blind patriotism, is a hard item to sell, some of Diogenes' other ideas were even more radical. For example, he was clearly no big fan of the nuclear family, but rather argue for some ancient form of polyamory, with people being free to have multiple sexual partners. What about parenthood then? In pre-DNA testing days, how could one determine who the father was? Diogenes believed that his utopic, free-loving communities should raise children in common with no thought of for who the biological father was. Well, the biological mother is pretty clear, since the baby pops out of her body, but the father clearly is a more complicated thing. Diogenes said, who cares? That's really not that important. Now, this is the exact opposite of the concept of marriage in ancient Greece and for the matter in many other parts of the world. Besides being a business arrangement, monogamous marriage was all about making sure that a man's kids were biologically his own. In a speech attributed to the famous orator Demosthenes, it is said, men have prostitutes for pleasure, concubines to take care of our bodies, and wives to secure the legitimacy of children and keep homes in order. The lot of Greek women was Fairly awful, since their rights were severely limited and ancient Greek culture was characterized by a solid amount of misogyny. Perhaps paradoxically, the most liberated women in all of Greece were high-ranking sex workers who received a great education since wealthy men would pay them not just for sex but also for a better conversation and companionship that they could get from their poorly educated wives. It is said that the same Demosthenes mentioned just a few seconds ago was willing to pay the princely sum of 1,000 drachmas for a night with Lais, one of the most famous courtesans of the day. When you consider that a typical worker could earn between half a drachma to a drachma per day, you can gain a sense of just how much 1,000 drachmas were. But Lais was not impressed with Demosthenes' fame or money. So she raised the asking price to 10,000 drachmas. And in a forter's lap in the face, however, she would have sex with Diogenes for nothing, since she found him much more interesting. Besides being the recipient of the good graces of celebrity sex workers, the fine Alexander the Great and pushing forward ideas that seemed outlandish in ancient Greece. Diogenes' biography is enriched by yet more drama. At some point, because an exact chronology is nearly impossible, but at some point in his life, Diogenes was traveling by sea, which was always a dangerous proposition in ancient Greece, mainly due to the fact that gangs of pirates often ruled the open sea. And so we can add an encounter with pirates to Diogenes' already colorful biography. In this case, the pirates seized the ship he was traveling on, promptly captured everyone on board, and brought them to be sold to a nearby slave market. In my version of the story, it's the dread pirate Roberts who committed the deed, but I admit there's a teeny tiny chance that my devotion to the princess bride may stand in the way of historical accuracy here. When at the auction... He was asked if he had any special talent, and Diogenes replied, yes, to govern men. And in classic crazy Diogenes fashion, he told the actioneer that he should announce that anyone needing a master should buy him. Perhaps intrigued by his weirdness, a Corinthian named Xeniades bought him, brought him to Corinth, and placed him in charge to educate his sons and oversee his household. Diogenes apparently proved himself more than capable for the job and gave Xenaiades' kids a great intellectual education in addition to including teaching them how to ride, shoot the bow, throw javelins, sling stones, cook for themselves without relying on slaves, eat simple food and develop good memory. The kids loved him and after Xenaiades died Diogenes was freed his days as a high-value slave at an end. And so at that point he returned to his wandering ways, living on the streets. One source tells us Diogenes would spend the winter in Athens and summer in Corinth. And it is during those days in Corinth that his famed meeting with Alexander the Great, the one we opened the episode with, supposedly took place. Earlier I gave you the short version of the story, but another couple of details are almost as good as the punchline. There's actually a whole corpus of stories about the interactions between Diogenes and Alexander, and as I mentioned earlier, it's almost certain that at least some of the stories were made up. It's actually quite probable that Diogenes and Alexander had a genuine encounter, with most sources indicating that the standout of my sunlight that I told you about early in the episode, as the most likely candidate. And it's equally probable that some writers were so intrigued with that interaction, that they let their fantasy fly and created more anecdotes trying to capture the same spirit. The contrast between a street philosopher owning next to nothing and Alexander, the most powerful man in the world, a man who had ordered the deaths of countless people crushed cities under his boots and was worshipped as a god. Well, that contrast was just too good of a literary device to resist the temptation to add stories to whatever historical event actually took place between them. So here we go with a few juicy ones, with making no claims about these are legend, these are real, because realistically nobody knows. One of them tells us that Alexander the Great found Diogenes looking, you know, digging at bones and looking at this pile of human bones. And when Alexander asked the obvious question, which is, "What are you doing? What are you searching for? Diogenes replied, "The bones of your father, but I cannot distinguish them from those of a slave." Ouch. Or what about Alexander the Great saying, Are you not afraid of me? And Diogenes replied, Why? What are you, a good thing or a bad thing? Alexander replied, a good thing. Diogenes said then, Who could possibly be afraid of something good? Or, check out a version of the story that has Alexander summoning Diogenes and Diogenes sending back word saying, You're too powerful to need me and I'm too self-sufficient to need you. If even half of this stuff is true, it's either a miracle that Alexander didn't order Diogenes' head to be placed on a pike, or it says something about Alexander's character. Arian, who was Alexander's main biographer, seems to offer some ammunition to the latter theory, since he reports being suitably impressed and reacting in a similar way to that Alexander, Sorry, I forgot to mention that Alexander was suitably impressed and reacted in a similar way to some religious ascetics in India, people who coincidentally lived very similarly to Diogenes himself. What Arian tells us is that Alexander having heard about the stories of the spiritual discipline and endurance of Indian wandering monks when he found himself in India during his conquest of um big parts of Asia. Alexander was quite interested in meeting them. You know, he had been on a first name basis with some of the most brilliant minds the West had to offer. As we said earlier, no less than Aristotle had been his private teacher, so he was always happy to meet people who were revered for in their intellectual or spiritual talent. And so on one occasion Alexander requested to meet with Esadu one of the religious figures of Hinduism and Jainism, who renounced life in society in order to focus 100% on spiritual practice. In a near repeat of his encounter with Diogenes, the Sado supposedly replied he had no need of anything that Alexander could give since he was content with what he had. And this is Diogenes 2.0, Right? And in an even more widely reported anecdote, Arian tells us the following. And on this account I praise some of the Indian philosophers who are said to have been caught by Alexander as they were walking in the open meadow where they were used to spend their time. Upon spotting him and his army, they did nothing else but stamp their feet on the earth. When Alexander asked them through interpreters, what was the meaning of their action, they replied, King Alexander, every man possesses as much earth as this, upon which we have stepped. By you, being only a man like the rest of us, except in being troublesome and arrogant, have come so far from your own land, giving trouble to both yourself and others. And yet you will die soon, and will possess only as much earth as you will be buried in. On this occasion, Alexander praised both the words and the men who spoke them, but nevertheless he did just the opposite to that which he praised. So, based on this account by Arian, it seems that Alexander kind of had a soft spot for homeless philosophers who scolded him, and yet he was unable to follow their advice because, as Arian puts it, he was the slave of his insatiable ambition. In any case, back to the events of Diogenes' biography. Well, Diogenes' tour of earthly existence was almost at the end, for he died within a few years after his meeting with Alexander. One version tells us that Diogenes died by holding his breath, which of course is physiologically impossible. Another version tells us that he ate a raw octopus and died, because probably that was not a good idea. In another version, he was distributing the octopus to some of his dogs when one of them beat him, and that caused an infection that killed him. Some said he died from a fever on his way to the Olympic Games. Nobody knows, realistically, there's all sorts of tales. It is said that about his future burial, he had told he wanted to be thrown out of the city walls and be left to be eaten by animals a concept that American writer Henry David Thoreau clearly loved since in his uh, Walden he mentions how it's manlier and wiser to give one's body to dogs rather than build sumptuous burials like the pyramids. The Roman philosopher Cicero wrote as a genuine cynic he would insist without ambivalence that his body should be just thrown away without burial His associates would ask him, but could it be that you wish that your body be the food of vultures and wild beasts? Not at all, he would reply, as long as you provide me with a stick to chase those creatures away. But they would say, how could you do that if you will not be aware of anything? Ah, yes, said Diogenes, if in death I cannot be aware of anything, how could the bites of wild creatures hurt me? But some of his disciples got into a big argument about how to bury him, so they clearly didn't get it. You know There was a big funeral arranged by the town of Corinth. They built a statue of a dog and a couple of inscriptions of a plaque, saying, "One even being fairly flamboyant and saying, "Even bronze grows old with time, by your fame, Diogenes, not all eternity shall take away for you alone." did point out to mortals the lesson of self-sufficiency and the path for the best and easiest life. Not quite everyone in the history of philosophy was as enthusiastic in their assessment of Diogenes. The famous German 18th century philosopher Hegel referred to the scenic school of philosophy that took its inspiration from Diogenes in less than thrilled fashion. There is nothing particular to say about the cynics, said Hegel, for they possess but little philosophy and did not bring what they had into a scientific system. And in another quote, Hegel wrote Generally speaking, the cynics were nothing more than swinish beggars who found their satisfaction in the insolence that they showed others. They are worthy of no further consideration in philosophy and they deserve fully the name of dogs which was only given to them, for the dog is a shameless animal. Considering that Hegel believed that the state was the place where human beings are realized, it seems pretty obvious that he wouldn't be a fan of individualists like Diogenes. Another group of guys who were disturbed by Diogenes and friends, were strict moralists, were disgusted with Diogenes' antics. He was just too wild, too punk, One of the fathers of the Catholic Church, St. Augustine, wrote Those cynic philosophers overlook the virtue of modesty when in violation of the modest instincts of all human beings they boastfully proclaim their unclean and shameless opinion worthy indeed of dogs. That is, that since the matrimonial act is legitimate no one should be ashamed to perform it openly in the street or in any public place. Instinctive shame, however, has prevailed over this wild fancy, for though it's related that Diogenes once there to put his opinion in practice, under the impression that his sect would be all the more famous if his egregious shamelessness were deeply impressed in the memory of mankind, yet his example was not followed. In case you are with me and you are wondering what St. Augustine is talking about in this monstrously, needlessly complicated sentence, what he's doing is expressing his disgust at Diogenes for having sex in public. Augustine believed that, or liked to believe rather, that the cynics theorized this but didn't act on their theories. Seems like he was wrong since most sources disagree with him on this. This obviously deeply offended even non-Christian sensibilities. Uh, The the same Roman philosopher and politician, Cicero, who was very much a stickler when it came to morality, said, The sect of the cynics should be wholly rejected, for it represents the enemy of shamefulness, without which there can be nothing either right or honest. (sighs) Cicero as the mother of everything that is right and honest. It reminds me of why in high school, when we got to the part of history when Mark Antony's assassins chased down and chop Cicero's head off, everyone in my class cheered, much to the dismay of my Latin teacher. In some way what makes Diogenes unusual is that he was born in the West, some of his weirdness would have been at least slightly less weird within the context of zen buddhism or indian mysticism there are several hindu mystical traditions emphasizing many of the same points diogenes preached rejecting scriptures living as naked hermits enjoying a frugal lifestyle emphasizing teaching by example and living in the present moment and even living with dogs as the author Louis Navia describes them these Indian mystics they would go naked like animals or lightly clothed living on the fringes of society and rejecting the arrangements and amenities the civilized life provides neither laws nor social norms were their concern and they lived as if the whole world were their country and as if all things belonged to all and nothing to anyone in particular. Now, it's possible that some of these scenic ideas came from India. There's a big debate on this, because, of course, some like to emphasize Western achievements as uniques, whereas others tend to argue that Greek philosophy, which is considered the philosophical soul of Western civilization, may have been heavily influenced by Eastern sources. It's a big who-knows, I mean, people traveled back then. As we saw earlier, Sinop, you know, Diogenes' birth city was at the end of a caravan route that went through Persia and India. But there's no way to know for sure. So it's one of those make-what-you-will-of-it. Diogenes' influence on a variety of thinkers who lived after his days has been profound. Whether directly or indirectly, it's impossible to avoid recognizing his irreverent spirit in Nietzsche, in writers like Kerouac and Bukowski, and perhaps even in master comedians like George Carlin. But one of the most obvious philosophical influences has been on the development of Stoicism. As mentioned briefly earlier, according to some sources, it was one of Diogenes' students who taught Zeno, the man who would eventually become the founder of Stoicism. And based on everything we have seen so far, it's really not too hard to see how Diogenes would offer ammunition to the development of Stoic philosophy. Diogenes' whole life was dedicated to learning how to make himself comfortable in uncomfortable situations and obvious cornerstones of Stoic philosophy. Or consider this passage by his biographer about him. He maintained, moreover, that nothing in life has any chance of succeeding without strenuous practice, which is capable of overcoming any obstacles. So this idea of discipline, allowing us to live content without the many things that people need to be happy. Again, obvious Stoic concept. So considering how important Stoicism will be in the history of philosophy it is easy to see how far-reaching were the repercussions of Diogenes' crazy antics. Now, I told you at the beginning of the episode that I would hold my reservations about Diogenes until the end, so as not to let my opinion color the narrative too much. But now that this story is coming to a close, it's time for me to be blunt and share some thoughts. So let me start with a smaller, perhaps nitpicky kind of criticism before moving on to the more meaningful one. You know, Diogenes keep going on and on about self-sufficiency, and then he makes a living by begging off other people? I feel he could have done a better job by perhaps cultivating the food he needed rather than depend on other people's generosity. Or if he could have begged for food but not make such a big deal about self-sufficiency, you know, but both at the same time seems a bit hypocritical. But in any case, let's move on to the more substantial issue here. There's no argument that Diogenes is larious. His answers to Alexander the Great, his sarcasm, his quick wit these are all the skills of a master comedian but the punk rocker of ancient Greece seems to share the same limitations as modern punk. Here is my problem with him and with punk in general. Both Diogenes and punk are at their best when it comes to criticising established values and raising a middle finger towards stale rules and oppressive dogmas. And for that I love them, that part is great. But when it comes to creating better alternatives to the stuff they criticize, they fall miserably short. You know, They seem great at destroying, but not so much at creating and inspiring. After reading every conceivable source about him, Diogenes comes across to me as incredibly funny, but also snarky, cranky, very negative toward everything and everyone. In my mind, A powerful critique of an established system can't stop at pointing the finger telling everyone how bad that system is. Ultimately, you also have to show me what's good, to quote Nicki Minaj. Yes, I'm aware she uses what's good in a slightly different way, but I'm too distracted by her curves to fully process the nuances of meaning, so just cut me some slack. If Nicki Minaj is not your thing, let's try with Nietzsche. In a passage from Das Buch Zarathustra, Nietzsche writes, "Free from what? As if that mattered. But your eyes should tell me brightly, free for what." And this is exactly the crux of the matter here. You know, I appreciate Diogenes' efforts to free himself from an oppressive social structure, but I also want to see him create something amazing with that freedom. Instead, I see him talking massive amounts of crap while begging for food. This is why I much prefer a guy like EQ Sojon to what Diogenes has to offer. If you recall episodes 45 and 46 of History on Fire, EQ was also hilariously funny, and much like Diogenes, he regularly savage established forms of authority, whether it be religious or political. But in addition to doing this, IQ was a fun-loving guy who made people around him happy and incidentally managed to create beautiful alternatives to the social values he criticized. In IQ, the critical component went hand-in-hand hand with joy and the creation of beauty. In Diogenes, on the other hand, once the laughter over his jokes dies down, there's little other than harshness and crankiness. Friend of Diogenes, for example, was the Athenian general Phocion. In the assembly, he always casted his vote against the majority because he believed most people are stupid. If an idea is supported by men, it's probably bad. Now, I can see his point. The average person is probably not the greatest thing you ever want to run into, but some people are good. You know, most men... Are probably not good, but some are. Most ladies may be not good, but some are. From a strategic point of view, Diogenes' way didn't bring about collective enlightenment. He was just able to influence a few exceptions, which is fine by B, but maybe had it been a little bit of a less harsh, stern pain in the butt, he would have been able to reach more exceptions. I'm grateful, so don't get me wrong, there's a lot I like about Diogenes. I'm grateful that individuals like the punk rocker of ancient Greece existed and still exist today. Inviting people to question socially accepted tradition and one's own values is as healthy a thing as one can do. But the way I see it, criticism of the status quo, as legitimate as it may be, needs to just be the first step on our way to creating something better. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, join me over at Luminari for the latest epic stories from History on Fire. Go to luminaripodcasts.com to start your free trial. Again, that's luminaripodcasts.com to start your free trial. Thank you so much.